turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we continue our study through this letter. We are now on verse 6. So we'll be going through verses 6 through 10. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's hear the word of our God. Verse 6 begins. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. This is God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon our time. God, we thank you again that you've revealed yourself in the scriptures, that we might know the truth. Help us to see the truth. Help us to understand it. And we thank you that through the scriptures, you have given us encouragement so that we might have hope. And we pray, Lord, that this morning your spirit would point us to Jesus Christ to give us hope through your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I think our theme song for today is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I noticed that Pastor Sarver chose it for the beginning of this service, and then I believe Pastor Hill chose it for the next service, the afternoon service, and neither of them knew that I was planning to start this sermon with Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. So it's the theme for today. It's one of the best songs, I think, that we sing at Christmas time. But, you know, it's really not technically a Christmas song. It is an Advent song. And for churches that do Advent, Advent is about uh, preparing and waiting for the coming of Christ. And it's done before Christmas time to remember how people waited for the first coming of Christ. But it's really about waiting for the second coming of Christ. And Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is really technically a song about the second coming. You see that especially in the second stanza where it says, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. So you see he's been born. We're remembering that he's been born. And then it says, Now thy gracious kingdom bring. We're longing for him to bring his kingdom. Then it says, by thine own eternal spirit, 
rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. It's a prayer that Christians would be raised to the throne, that we would enter into the presence of God, that Jesus Christ would return and we could face him at the judgment seat and then enter into the joy of our master. Whether you celebrate Advent or not or recognize that as a season doesn't really matter all that much. But in the New Testament, so often we are pointed to the second coming of Christ. And that is what we are supposed to look forward to. We're supposed to live our lives in light of the truth that we will appear before God and we will be in his presence. In the letter of Titus, Paul calls this our blessed hope. And this is what Paul is talking about in this passage in verses 6 through 10. The hope, the encouragement, the confidence that we can have knowing that Christ is returning and one day we will appear before him. You see this in the phrase that's repeated in verse 6 and then in verse 8. In my Bible, it's translated, we are of good courage. We are of good courage. And what that word really means is we are confident. That word confident is used in the NIV and the New King James. It comes across the better idea that we are to live this life confidently. I like Wycliffe's translation. He says, we be hardy. We be hardy. What's a hardy person? A hardy person is someone who deals with difficulty and keeps going, doesn't stop. We be hardy always. We are always confident. I wonder if you would describe yourself as a confident person. I think most of us would say we're not confident people. Most of us are insecure about quite a few things. And this confidence, though, doesn't come from a personality trait that you have. It doesn't come from something that is within you. This confidence comes from the Spirit. You see that because the first word of verse 6 is so. And it takes us back to what we looked at last week, where he ended in verse 5, telling us that the God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is the down payment. The Spirit is the guarantee that we will be in the presence of Christ. The down payment means that God is going to pay off the mortgage. And the mortgage is your body. Your body will be returned to Him and it will be glorified and it will be made new. And it's already being happening. It's already at work because the Spirit is in you to renew you day by day. So we can be confident. So we are hardy always. And remember that this confidence is in the context of the afflictions that we face here in chapters 4 and 5. We are jars of clay. 
but we are confident. We are being given over to death, but we are confident. Our outer self is wasting away, but we can be confident. We face afflictions, but we can be confident. Chapter 5, verse 1, we saw last week, the tent of our earthly home, of our bodies, is being destroyed. But we can be confident. We can live this life confidently, even though it is full of pain, because of the work that God is doing in us. And so, with a confident life, how do you live that out? What does that look like? Well, in the rest of this passage, we see two ways that we live confidently. So first, we walk by faith, not by sight. Second, we aim to please Christ. This is how we live, confidently looking for the appearing of Christ. So first, he says, you live confidently when you walk by faith and not by sight. Let's read verses 6 and 7 again. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Right now in this life, we are away from the Lord. We are not directly in his presence. While we live in this body, you will not be in the presence of God. When we die, our soul goes immediately into the presence of God. And then one day our bodies are raised and soul and body, we will forever be in the presence of God. But right now, in this body, means to be away from the Lord. Now, that means that we are looking forward to something. That means that we haven't accomplished what we desire to accomplish. We haven't achieved what we are looking for. This is a temporary situation. Right now, we are at home in these bodies that are suffering and breaking down. And so right now, we are on a journey. We walk, verse 7, he says. Right now, we walk on a journey going somewhere. Because you haven't arrived at your destination, you keep walking. You are moving forward. And so your expectations need to be that you have not yet arrived at home, right? If you are going on a trip, and maybe if you can imagine, you are on your way to your home, but you are living in a tent, well, you're not discouraged by the fact that your tent has no running water, that your tent doesn't have indoor plumbing. You know it's a tent, It's a tent that is only temporary, and you're looking forward to getting home where there is running water, where there's hot showers and things like this. And sometimes we forget when we face the things we face in life, when we sit around and we complain and and we moan about the suffering that we are experiencing, it's because we've forgotten that we are not there yet. We are still walking on the journey. Right now, we're in these tents. We're in these broken bodies. And so how are we to walk? Walk by faith, not by sight. 
Let's talk about the second one first. What does it mean to walk by sight? Well, this is a big theme in, in 2 Corinthians. This idea of sight or appearances. Paul has already said in chapter 4, verse 18, that we need to look at the things that are unseen. The unseen things are eternal. Some people look for the things that are seen, and those things are passing away. Look at what's unseen, he's saying. And then we're going to look in a little while, a few weeks maybe, chapter 5, verse 12. And this is maybe one of the themes of 2 Corinthians in this verse. He says, I want you to be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. The problem in Corinth is that there are people boasting about appearance. They are living by sight. The teachers have come in and they are making a big deal about their human eloquence. They are making a big deal about their status in society and their power in the culture. And they are making a big deal about the appearance of Paul. Paul is apparently weak. And that word apparently is the word that means to appear Apparently, Paul is weak. Apparently, Paul is suffering. Apparently, Paul is simple. But that's only if you walk by sight. He appears weak. He appears as a clay jar. But really, if you walk by faith, you see that in the clay jar is the treasure the surpassing power of God that, that belongs to God and not to him. And so this is the theme of the letter. Don't walk by what appears on the outside. You may come to conclusions about yourself based on sight. It may appear to you that your outward self is wasting away. It may appear to you that you are experiencing affliction. And you walk by sight, you focus on the affliction. You walk by faith, you focus on the eternal weight of glory being prepared by the affliction. It may appear to you that the tent of your earthly home is being destroyed if you walk by sight. But if you walk by faith, you look at the fact that you will be given a new glorious body. And so you may conclude based on appearances, you maybe can't be very useful. Maybe because physically your body is breaking down. Maybe because of age. Maybe because you feel you don't have many skills or abilities. Or just your personality. You don't think you're, you're what people in this country, people in this culture, they, they want. So uh, apparently, you may not be useful according to the culture's eyes. But you are called to walk by faith, not by sight. It might appear, if others were to look at you, that perhaps God thinks there's something wrong with you, and that's why he is punishing you and punishing you and punishing you. 
But by faith you realize, actually, he is preparing for you this eternal weight of glory. So to walk by sight is to walk based on what outwardly appears to be the case, according to how the world would interpret life. What does it mean then to walk by faith? Well, some people think that to walk by faith means that uh, faith is blind. Faith is irrational. You just believe something, even if it doesn't make any sense or it's against reason. It's irrational. That's not what faith is. Here in this verse, we see faith is the opposite of sight. Just because you can't see it doesn't make it less true. It doesn't make it less real. There is an eternal weight of glory. That is a fact. You just don't see it right now. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You just haven't heard of anybody going there and coming back and telling you what it was like. And so, because you haven't seen it, you have to have faith that these things are true, but they are just as true. Hebrews 11 talks about faith like this. It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, or maybe the opposite, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. It's a conviction about things that you just haven't seen. I've never seen Australia. I've never been there, but I am convinced that Australia exists. It doesn't make it any more or less true uh, whether I've seen it or not. And so God exists, not because Christians say he does or I believe he does, but because he is the reality that has created the universe and explains everything. He exists. It is not illogical to believe that God exists because he exists. It's just that we can't see him. And so we have faith, not sight of him. And maybe some of you have heard uh, Karl Marx's famous saying, Karl Marx, the socialist. Uh, he said that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's opium for the people. It's the drug for the people. He said religion is just something that people like to believe because it makes them feel good. It makes them get through life. Yeah, nice things in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 about eternal weight of glory. That's all good. Good for you if it helps you get through life. That's basically what he's saying. Well, in some ways, what he says is true because he says religion. And there are many religions that are false. And there are many religions that are just opium for people. People believe false things, and it might help them get through life, but it doesn't do any good to them. It's false. But Christianity is different. Christ is the truth. Christ is not just something we make up to believe so that we can get through hard times. He is real. He has truly risen from the dead. He's not risen from the dead because Christians say he has. He really has risen from the dead. 
you really will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so, you need to believe it. You need to have faith in something that you haven't seen. So we walk. We keep walking on this journey, on this pilgrimage, by faith. Christ is on the throne, and those who belong to Christ, one day we will see him. We walk by faith because one day our faith will be sight. As that song says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. This is what we're looking forward to. This is the home that we are traveling to. This is what we are expecting, longing for. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? What's going to happen to them? They shall see God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we look in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Revelation 22, verse 4. They shall see his face. Your faith will be sight. So keep walking. This is what we literally were created to do. As to see the glory of God. The main reason that God gave Adam and Eve eyes and created them in the first place was so that those eyes could behold the glory of God. And I think he even, he even knew everything that was going to happen with the Son coming to earth and taking on flesh. And he knew Revelation 22 verse 4 that we would see his face. And so he gave us eyes. He gave you physical eyes so that one day your eyes would behold Jesus Christ face to face. And so you need to trust Christ. You need to walk by faith to see him one day. So that's what it means to live confidently. Walk by faith. Second, we need to aim to please Christ. Aim to please Christ. We see this in verses 8 to 10. I'm going to read 8 and 9 again. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why are we confident? Well, he says, I'm confident even though I would rather be at home with the Lord and away from the body. This verse tells us, as I said before, that when we die, our souls are separated from the body. Our souls immediately go into the presence of the Lord. It's not going to stay that way forever. One day Christ will return and our souls will be given glorified new bodies. But for now, until Christ returns, to be at home with the Lord in heaven means away from the body. Your body's in the ground. This passage tells us that there is no such thing as purgatory. There is no waiting room when you die for your soul. 
There is no time for your soul to burn off its sins or for people to pray for your sins to be burnt off and to be worked off. There's no payments that can be made to lessen your time in purgatory. None of that happens. If you belong to Christ, you die and you are at home with the Lord. This passage also denies what some cults teach, uh, that your soul goes to sleep. Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, they teach that when you die, you just go into the ground with your body and soul, and your soul is just kind of asleep. It's just nothing happens until the return of Christ. This is one verse that clearly says that when you die, you're away from the body, you immediately are in the presence of the Lord. So Paul says, I would rather do that. I don't want to die necessarily, but I'd rather be in the presence of the Lord. But I can live confidently because whether I'm at home or away, verse 9, I make it my aim to please him. I make it my aim to please him. Here on this earth, I make it my aim to please him. I make it my aim to please him so that when I am with him, he is pleased with me. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now this verse, we make it our aim to please him. This gets to the core of who we are and our problems with sin. We love to please others. We make it our aim to please other people. Paul says he makes it his aim to please Christ. His ambition is what this word means. His goal in life is to please only Jesus Christ. He wants to be the man of 1 Corinthians 3 who, when all his work is burned up in the fire, he has built on precious stones on the church of Christ. He has, he has loved and served the church with good materials so that on that day he pleases Christ. He wants to be the man of 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, devote yourself, study to show yourself a man approved to God. Not approved to people, but approved unto God. A workman who has no need to be ashamed before God. He wants to be the man of Acts chapter 20 when he says about himself, I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish the race and the ministry that I have been given by the Lord Jesus. My goal is to do what Jesus tells me. That should be our aim. But, as I said, our aim is often to please other people. Now, we have to be careful with this. Please don't misunderstand me. There's some sense in which it is right for you to care about what other people think about you. Proverbs 20, verse 11 says, Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is good and right. And even, if you even make conclusions about a child by his conduct, that means even adults too. You are known by your actions. You're known by your behavior. And so you need to care 
in some sense, what people think about you. As a silly example, if you dress like a slob, people will think that you're a slob. People will conclude about you that you are irresponsible because of the way you dress. I know young people today, they, need, they want to say, oh, people who don't, shouldn't judge me don't care, don't care what people think. Well, that's a case where you need to care what people think. Your behavior reflects who you are inside. Another thing we need to understand is that God has made us to be in relationships and to be loved by people. And so there is some good to the fact that people should encourage and affirm and love one another. The instructions of the church, Paul doesn't just say, don't gossip, don't slander, don't lie. He says, encourage, build up. And so it's natural that a spouse wants to be encouraged by their spouse. Children want to be encouraged and affirmed by their parents. Church members, we want to be affirmed and encouraged by one another. So that's my, that's my preface to all this. With all of that said, though, our aim should be to please Christ and not man. It can be easy for us to change the way that we act and the way that we behave, the things that we do, only because we want other people to think well of us. There's a reason that some women, they spend lots of time wearing makeup, putting on their makeup. It's not because they just have nothing to do with their time and they have plenty of free time. It's because they want to appear a certain way to others. There's a reason some men like to wear really tight shirts and flex their muscles. Because they want to appear to look a certain way. Now, even if we go past the desire to please others in the, our physical appearance, we can all admit that you desire that others praise you. You desire for others to encourage you. You don't like when people criticize you. You don't like when people discourage you, do you? And all of these things can be a product of the fear of man. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man is a snare. It's a deadly trap. It will kill you to always worry about what people think about you. One of the main ways that shows we worry about what people think about us is by comparing ourselves to others. I remember one time, a uh, mom in, in, in a church, she had a child that went to school, and she was telling me about the battles, the, the mommy wars that were fought at school over who could be the best mom. And she said that these moms would all make lunches for their kids, and there was a battle over who could make the fanciest, best lunch. And you know, some moms are like, oh, well, yours is, has too much sugar in it, and, and yours doesn't have enough vegetables in it. And, and of course, everybody has their opinions of what, what a good mom should do. And she said, even 
Moms would get like these cookie cutter things, except it was a sandwich cutter. And I hope I don't offend anybody who has sandwich cutters. But, but they had sandwich cutters in the shape of something like Mickey Mouse. And so the moms would spend time cutting the sandwich that looked like Mickey Mouse's head so that the daughter could go to school. And everybody could say, wow, you have a great mom. Wow, your mom gives you Mickey Mouse sandwiches. My mom doesn't do that. And so this person in the church was actually really struggling with this. All these moms, they're always competing. Who's the best mom? And so is this person going to go buy a sandwich cutter to please the moms at school? Is that your aim? That other people will think you're a good mom? Or is your aim to please Christ? So women, whether it's being a mother or being a homeschooler, or managing your home, whatever it is. It's very easy to to try to compare and then try to aim to please certain people so that people will think well of you. For men, it might be more in the area of work. Uh, You might aim to please your boss, your manager. You might aim to to get a promotion, and so you do everything that you do at work for the sake of pleasing this person or pleasing this group of people. You desire to achieve things in your life, and so you desire to have more degrees and more certifications, whatever it is. And and your whole life, you're just trying to do more and more and more. Maybe it's because you want to be better than your brother. Maybe it's because you want your dad to be proud of you. And so you're working and you're working and you're working, aiming to please men. It's a lot easier, isn't it, to work a little more, to please someone else, than to pray a little more, to please Christ. It's so easy for a man to spend an extra hour or two on his work, to please others. For kids... You have a desire to please your parents. That's a good desire. The problem is that when in your heart you don't really desire to do what your parents say or to obey the word of God. And so that might lead you even to lie about what you're doing, to try to hide what you're doing, to not confess your sins. Because you care more that your parents think well of you than of what you really need to do before Christ, which is confess your sins. Of course, you should aim to please your parents, but what your parents want is not outward obedience only. But what your parents want is that your heart truly loves Christ and you aim to please Christ. We could go on all day. We can think of every role in your life. We could think of every person in this room. And we could think of ways that we aim to please other people. And it's unhealthy. The fear of man is a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
He's going to say that in verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord. That's the answer. Care more what the Lord thinks than about what the other mom thinks about the sandwiches that you make. Make it your aim to please Christ. And then in verse 10, we have the reason. We have that word for. Here's why you really need to care about pleasing Christ. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The Son will sit on the throne to judge all of mankind. We have a court date with the Son of God. We have an appointment with him. You will not be able to get out of this appointment. You can avoid showing up at court on this earth for quite a while, but you will not avoid the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We have a day of reckoning. We have a day when all accounts will be settled. Now, I used to think, maybe you think this, I used to think that uh, at this judgment seat, that even for the Christian, that God was going to read out the list of all of my sins, or even that there would be like some sort of big screen and there would be a video replaying all the scenes of my life and all of my sins. And when I was a child, that was terrifying. That was terrifying. I don't want everybody to, to watch all the sins that I've committed. Well, I used to think that, but maybe some people disagree here disagree, but I, I, I don't see how that lines up with justification. The moment that I and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are considered righteous in Jesus Christ, clothed with his righteousness. And so God always looks upon you from that moment on as the perfect, obedient son, like he sees Jesus, the son of God. Not because you are that, but because you've been given in, in your place the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I don't see how I could be righteous in Jesus Christ from the moment I believe to then one day have to be afraid that all my sins are going to get dredged up again. I think if I am justified, my sins are cast away as far as the east is from the west. If I am justified, God promises, I will remember your sins no more. For the unbeliever, it's possible that something like that will happen in the sense that God will make known to everyone why the unbeliever is guilty, why the unbeliever has broken the law of God, and why God is just to send that unbeliever to hell. 
As an unbeliever, I would say that you probably do have reason to be terrified by this. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it is quite possible that God will make known all of your wicked deeds. Everything in secret will be brought to light on that day. For the Christian, what is Paul talking about here? Well, he says that each one would receive what's due for what he's done in his body, whether good or evil. And so for the Christian, this doesn't seem to be talking about deciding if you are justified or not. You already are justified. What's going to happen at the judgment is that you will receive a reward or lack thereof for what you've done in this life. And so if you have done good in this life, this earns rewards, not salvation, not justification, but rewards in heaven. And evil that you have done in this life can diminish those rewards. And so we will, as Christians, appear before God and he will hand out our rewards based on what we've done in this life. Jonathan Edwards talks about Uh, this concept of earning rewards. And he says, well, how is it that, that we will all be happy in heaven if everybody or if some people have more rewards than other people? How is that grace? Well, he gives an image of an ocean of happiness. There's an ocean of happiness. And he says, at the judgment, you will receive a, a cup or a bowl. And with that bowl, you will go and you will fill it up with the, from the ocean of happiness. And so you will be fully happy. And so he says the reward is that some people will have a bigger cup. Some people will have a smaller cup. And so in that sense, everyone's fully happy because everyone's cup is full. But some people are more full and happy in that sense than other people. And he also says, well, we're not going to be envious in heaven. There's going to be no envy because there's no sin. And so actually the people with the smaller rewards, their happiness will be increased by watching other people be happy. So no matter what, don't worry. If you're a Christian, you will be happy in heaven. Don't worry. But you will also be rewarded based on the good that you do in this life. And that should motivate you. It should encourage you to live for that day. Paul's now writing verse 10 to make us imagine some scenarios about oceans of happiness. Not necessarily. That's not his main point. His main point is that you need to understand that you must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That should change how you live. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God will not ask you if you pleased the other moms. God will not ask you if you pleased your boss at work. God will not ask you if you graduated summa cum laude or if you have a PhD. 
God will not ask you how much money you made over your career. God will ask you, were you faithful to me? Did you love me? And did you obey me? Christian, make it your aim to please Christ so that you can hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. If you are here and you're not following Christ, this is the truth, that you too will appear before his judgment. When you see the sun set tonight and you see the sun rise tomorrow, you think to yourself, just as surely as the sun goes up and down, that is how sure I can be that one day I will appear before Christ. This is not a preacher giving his opinions. This is not Paul telling us some advice about what he thinks. This is God telling you today, right now. There's a reality that is coming before you. You will give an account for everything that you do in this life. And we know that all of us, including you, have broken the law of God. God is holy and you deserve his judgment and his condemnation. There is no escape for you. There is no getting away from this appointment for you. So you need to trust in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who has paid for sins in the place of those who would come to him. He has risen from the dead. So that if you will truly come to him and rely on him alone for forgiving your sins, God will wipe them away. God will consider you righteous in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. And so we can be confident. And confident that we will appear before him. And so let's live by faith. Let's make it our aim to please him. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you, the holy God, are gracious to us for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your word that takes away all the mist that clouds our thinking, that shows us the reality once again of this world and of eternity. We pray, Lord, that we, your church, we would, in a visible, tangible way, we would walk by faith. We pray that we would make it our aim to please you. Lord, we pray that you would put before our minds that final day. We pray that we 
would put all of our hope in Jesus Christ, rest in him alone for our salvation, and look forward to the day of his return. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.